from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 9th. Today, what happened this week in the Derek Chauvin murder trial and why it's so hard to prosecute police. So, Holly, when we last heard from you about the Chauvin trial, you talked about how we were hearing a lot from the bystanders who were at the scene when George Floyd died. For the past week since then, what is the theme of the testimony that we've been seeing? Well, the prosecution shifted their case into two different subjects. Holly Bailey is a national correspondent for The Post. The first was it it went into Derek Chauvin's policing. And so we heard from, in what was a really striking few days of testimony, just several Minneapolis police officers, including the police chief, Madera Arredondo, taking the stand and talking about Derek Chauvin and how the maneuver that he performed on George Floyd, the knee to the neck, the knee to the back, and holding him in a prone position for you know nearly 10 minutes was not anything that was according to department policy, and it wasn't a trained move. And then they went into the investigation, and now we're beginning into the medical case, which is you know the debate over what caused George Floyd's death. And what are the differences between what we understand that the prosecution is arguing in terms of what caused George Floyd's death versus what the defense is going to try to say? Well, the prosecution is basically arguing that Derek Chauvin and his restraint of George Floyd, he was using excessive force, he was using deadly force, and that the pressure from his restraint, from his knee, led to the man's death. And what the defense is arguing is that George Floyd died from other circumstances. They are arguing that he had a high level of drugs in his system and that he had existing health problems, including heart issues that were sort of complicated by the struggle with the police officers and that he died as a result of that. And the major witness on Thursday was a pulmonologist that was brought in by the prosecution. Can you walk me through what his testimony suggested? Mr. Tobin took the stand on on Thursday morning, and he basically, from the get-go, turned to the jury and began talking to them. He's Irish, um, originally from Ireland, and he sort of talked to them in this almost like soothing, professorial way, talking about how humans breathe. The respiratory system begins at the nose and the mouth. It goes down through the back of the throat, down through the windpipe, out through the bronchial tubes, and then down at the bottom, down to the alveolar air sacs. These are the small grape-like structures at the bottom where all the gas exchange takes place, where oxygen gets in and carbon dioxide is removed. But basically what he did is he got on the stand and talked about his opinion on what, uh, you know, what killed George Floyd. And he said it was a fatally low level of oxygen in his body, that the pressure and the weight of Derek Chauvin, you know, resting on George Floyd's neck and also his back stopped him from being able to breathe. And there were several very powerful moments when he 
went through and was narrating the bystander video that we've seen many, many times in the trial of George Floyd struggling underneath the knee of Derek Chauvin and pleading for breath and going motionless. And he basically said, you know, this is him. You're seeing one second he's alive. At the beginning, you can see he's conscious. You can see slight flickering and then it disappears. Is that the flicking yes, you were You can to? see his eyes, he's conscious. And then you see that he isn't. That's the moment the life goes out of his body. And this is you seeing a man losing his life because you can tell that there's no oxygen going to his brain. You know, when we think about that video that, that so many of us have seen so many times that I didn't realize it until now, but you don't actually know what's going on inside of George Floyd at that moment, that this is the kind of testimony that paints a picture of what we can't see, which was what was happening within him. One of the things that was really striking about Thursday's testimony is that prosecutors usually begin their medical case with calling the medical examiner himself. And in this case, it's Andrew Baker, who is the medical examiner in Hennepin County. And he is the person that conducted the autopsy of George Floyd last year. He declared it a homicide. And he said the man had died in part from compression of the neck and being subdued from law enforcement. And one of the things that was striking is that prosecutors decided to open their case instead by arguing another reason for George Floyd's death. Have you formed an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty on the cause of Mr. Floyd's death? Yes, I have. Mr. Floyd died from a low level of oxygen, and this caused damage to his brain that we see, and it also caused uh, a PEA arrhythmia that caused his heart to stop. And by uh, PEA, you mean pulseless electrical activity? Correct. It's a particular form of an abnormal beat of the heart, an, an arrhythmia. Is this what um, some persons might refer to as asphyxia? Yes. Both uh, Martin Tobin and another doctor, William Smock, who is a police surgeon for the Louisville Police Department, they both testified about and pointed to moments in the video where you see George Floyd's right hand kind of shoot out and kind of stiffly reach for the back the tire of the squad car. And they both pointed it out and said, this is, you know, to the naked eye, it seems like nothing. To most people, this doesn't look terribly significant, but to a physiologist, this is extraordinarily significant because this tells you that he has used up his resources and he is now literally trying to breathe with his fingers and knuckles. And what did the defense attorneys have to say about that? Did they try to poke holes in that kind of testimony? Yes, <laughs> in short, they did. Eric Nelson, who is Derek Chauvin's attorney, in cross-examination of these doctors, kind of stuck to what their theory is, you know, arguing that can't your breathing be hindered by the use of fentanyl, one of the substances that was found in George Floyd's blood as part of the autopsy. Can't, you know, drug abuse hinder your breathing? And you would agree generally that fentanyl uh, is a respiratory depressant. It can be. When a person is ingesting illicit street purchased fentanyl, it's, it's every time they take a fentanyl dose, it's a different experience for that person. Right, but if, if it's affecting the respiratory center, it's going to act through the mu receptors in the medulla oblongata. There's no way around that. 
Right. It's not if fentanyl isn't going to have an effect on respiration by some other mechanism. Understood. But the end result of fentanyl can include respir respiratory depression. Right, through the mu receptors. Right. And at one point, Dr. Tobin said, yes, it can. But in this case, you know, you look at the video and George Floyd was breathing kind of regularly like anybody would. There was a moment when the prosecutors pulled up a video and Dr. Tobin just counted George Floyd's breath and was just saying, you know, he was breathing fine until he stopped breathing. And so if it was with fentanyl, you'd be expecting a respiratory rate above 10. Instead of that, you counted here yourself. And you can see when you counted yourself that the respiratory rate is 22. So basically it tells you there, that isn't, there isn't fentanyl on board. And that is affecting his ris respiratory centers. It's not having an effect on his respiratory centers. So Mr. Floyd's uh, respiratory rate was normal at 22 just before he lost consciousness. Correct. So that was one theme of the past week, is these expert witnesses, people who can speak to what was happening biologically to George Floyd in his final moments. But you mentioned that we also heard a lot from other police officers and from the Minneapolis police chief. Can you talk a little bit more about what they had to say? Essentially, the police testimony began last week with a supervisor in Minneapolis's third precinct, which is where Derek Chauvin and the other officers who are charged in George Floyd's death were based. And for the first time during that testimony, we heard Derek Chauvin's voice. We hadn't seen his body camera video because it was knocked off in the struggle with George Floyd and really only captured the audio of the incident. In that case, it captured a conversation he had afterwards with his supervisor in which he really didn't talk about how he had restrained George Floyd or for how long. And the supervisor took the stand and in some ways disavowed him and said what he did wasn't training. And then he was followed on the stand by two other veteran officers, including the, long, the most senior officer in the Minneapolis Police Department, a guy named Richard Zimmerman, who said he had never been trained on that maneuver that Derek Chauvin used on George Floyd and that he shouldn't have used it. Have you ever, in all the years you've been working for the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, been trained to kneel on the neck of someone who is handcuffed behind their back in a prone position? No, I haven't. And directing your attention you know, to that moment when Mr. Floyd is placed on the ground. Yes. Um, what is your, uh, you know, your view of that use of force during that time period. Totally unnecessary. Then the week began this week with even more Minneapolis police officers, including, again, Madera Arredondo, who is the Minneapolis police chief, talking about training, talking about policy, and saying what they did was wrong. Is what you see in Exhibit 17, in your opinion, within Minneapolis Police Departmental Policy 5-300, authorizing the use of reasonable force? It is not. And why not? That is, that is uh, it has to be objectively reasonable. We have to take into account uh, the circumstances, information, the threat to the officer, the threat to others. Um, and we um, 
the severity of that. Uh, so that is not uh, part of our policy. That is not what we teach. And it was quite striking, in part because you don't see a lot of police testimony in cases like this where they seem to be friendly witnesses for the prosecution. It's often that they don't testify to their opinions. They testify to facts of the case and don't go further than that. But Chief Arredondo, for example, talked about how he saw the video of George Floyd being restrained by officers and immediately knew it was wrong. And as you say, this is a pretty rare thing to see police officers testifying against other police officers. What was the demeanor of the police chief in being in this really unique and, I think, uncomfortable position? You know, the one thing that's been very interesting about Chief Arredondo is, one, he so quickly moved to fire these officers. And then after that, he became very just engaged in, one, the civil unrest, and also in discussions. You know, he called George Floyd's family, I believe. He gave an interview, gave a statement in which he described what Derek Chauvin and the other officers had done. He described it as murder. So he's been very outspoken in that way. You know, we talk a lot about the challenges of prosecuting police officers and how much leeway they get in court. And what's interesting about the decision to bring in other police officers to testify against Chauvin is that it seems like one of the central arguments that they're making is not was lethal force necessary against George Floyd, but that this was just straight up bad policing, that these other police officers put in the same position would not have taken the same actions that, that Derek Chauvin did. I think it was definitely a calculated position. I mean, obviously, we would have, in normal circumstances, probably would have gotten testimony, for example, from the police chief. But I think that the prosecution's decision to bring in all these veteran officers, including the use of force trainer and the officers who are responsible for training other officers in CPR and in crisis intervention sort of events, having them testify one by one. Um, Some of them arrived in their uniforms, getting on the stand. But I think that they're trying to make a point to the jury that Derek Chauvin's colleagues think that he did wrong. At the same time, in their opening statements, you know, they pointedly said, we're not trying to argue that all police officers are bad. What we're trying to argue is that Derek Chauvin broke police policy. He betrayed his badge and his sworn duty as an officer when he knelt on George Floyd and didn't help him when he was in medical distress. So what do we expect to happen next in the trial? How quickly are we going to start hearing the defense making their case and bringing their witnesses? Prosecutors are in the middle of presenting their medical testimony, which is expected to round out the week. As soon as Monday, we could start hearing from members of George Floyd's family to testify as sort of spark of life witnesses as they're kind of referred to in court to remind jurors that this person was a human being and that this person had a life before this moment that has been a viral moment that hundreds of millions of people around the world have seen at this point, that this was a person who was a brother, who was a father, and really sort of get at that kind of emotional testimony. And then probably sometime, maybe as early as Tuesday, we're going to start seeing the defense and how Derek Chauvin 
response to what a lot of people agree, including people that are close to the defense, has been a pretty, you know, damning case against him. Holly Bailey is a national correspondent for The Post. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. I think what most people see as policing on the street, they think, you know, in some ways it kind of ends there. Something goes bad and certainly the courts are going to take care of it. There's some kind of due process will come from it. My name is Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleve and I'm an associate professor at Brown University in the Department of Sociology. And my work examines the criminal justice system and the criminal courts. Nicole has done a lot of research about this question of why police officers so rarely face consequences for excessive use of force. One major reason for that is the role of local and state prosecutors. And I think what most people ignore is that there is kind of an interdependence between prosecutors and police officers. For prosecutors, they are reliant on the police as their star witnesses. And for them, That means they have to kind of go along with the police narratives of events across all different types of cases. And in some ways to question the authority of an officer, you know, it's it's really stepping on their terrain. And so prosecutors learn very quickly that you just don't do it. You go along to get along. And what that means for them is, you know, if they're they're the star witnesses, they they need police officers to gain convictions in the system. And without those officers, they won't get promoted and they won't advance in the office. That's so fascinating, that idea of the interdependence between prosecutors and police officers. Can you describe in a little bit more detail what that actually looks like when you are a prosecutor and you have to work with a police officer to make the case that you're trying to make? Well, I studied the criminal justice system in Chicago, Cook County for over a decade, and it resulted in a book examining how this interdependence worked in practice. And what you find is when you study the work of prosecutors, they often know that police stories on the street and the cases they bring in, they sometimes just don't make sense. Sometimes they shade evidence in terms of the how they uh, acquired the evidence. And sometimes a suspect will arrive dead and the stories of officers just don't make sense. And there is this kind of quiet silence in the office, which is to question that pro- police officer is really like career suicide. Prosecutors in my study in Chicago, they talked about being intimidated by supervisors. And when they tried to whistleblow, you know, their careers were kind of dead on the street right there. I mean, they felt they were intimidated. 
One prosecutor described an ashtray being thrown at him where the prosecutors, the more higher level prosecutors said to this other prosecutor, are you a defense attorney? So there is kind of this code of silence that is not just in policing, but extends all the way in the prosecutor's office and really, you know, forces prosecutors to play along these rules if they want to advance. And so one can see why when a police officer does wrong, they are very reluctant to charge or hold that officer accountable. And what are the challenges that come up when there is a case where a prosecutor wants to bring charges against a police officer? Well, it happens so rarely. And just to put it into context, I I was um, speaking about, you know, Chicago, and that took 50 years to convict one officer one officer of murder. And we know that that police department is riddled with misconduct uh, cases, um, cases where people, suspects are dead. And so it really, like that statistic in and of itself brings it to life. I mean, I've said that before on the radio. I said 50 years and someone says 15. I go, no, 55. Oh, so I think, you know, uh, to me, it is so rare. And and right now what we're seeing in George Floyd and people wanting justice, it is rare just to have this officer charged. I mean, that in and of itself is a hurdle because some prosecutors will not do it. And when an officer is charged, does the criminal justice system, is it weighted in favor of the officer? Like, what are the systems in place that make it even more difficult to successfully convict them? One of the things that I've worked on in my research is showing that, you know, police can lie. Like all witnesses, they can lie. And prosecutors are willing to admit that they know that they've put police officers on the stand, even when they were perjuring themselves, or even when a case was so-called shaded or in some ways manipulated. Prosecutors have kind of prosecuted with blinders on. They know these factors exist. They know narratives kind of get constructed. They know police officers are bending the truth or testifying, as they use the word. Hmm. And they still push these cases forward. And I think if the public started to understand that, that this lying is part of the system, they might start to question officers when they're on juries. And that actually would be somewhat transformative in the system. That's so fascinating. And I wonder how that plays into prosecutors' personal careers, that it seems that in some ways, if you want to be considered a good prosecutor, and often being considered a good prosecutor means winning criminal convictions using the help of police officers, that the only way to basically be good at your job, according to the standards that are set out for you, is to be using this false testimony from police officers. We need new incentives that would protect prosecutors that want to do the right thing, that want to question the, you know, the integrity of a of an officer's statement without having the sense of retribution. And I think that to me is the is the key issue. When I was in the prosecutor's office doing my research, there were many, especially um, women prosecutors, that actually felt a sense of fear around officers. You know, they said, you know, stay away from them. If they start to pursue you, who are you going to call the police? And so, Hmm. you know, there is this kind of tacit threat of violence that in some ways keeps these norms in practice. You know, what does it mean to actually question an officer and what type of retribution will you experience not only just professionally, but on a personal level? And I think that in and of itself is this kind of dark cloak on this system. When people wonder, well, why is this happening across the nation? How is it possible that no jurisdiction or very few are holding these officers accountable? It's these larger cultural and institutional practices that link 
to the incentives of prosecutors that really perpetuate the lack of accountability when police do wrong. So then what are the solutions here? How do you create a system where there is less of that interdependence between prosecutors and police officers? Well, I think that, you know, we look at the Chauvin case and one thing that is instructive is that the local prosecutor, attorney Mike Friedman, was reluctant to charge the officer. That should tell us everything we need to know is that when there is a suspect that is dead, it is too difficult for a local prosecutor to objectively handle the case, right? There's too many tethers for the prosecutor and the police that are so often work together as partners in law enforcement. How do you break that when the defendant is now the officer? I think you do need some kind of outside prosecutors, some other more impartial prosecutor that's going to try the case and do it with a sense of integrity. And I think that's going to be really important moving forward. The other piece is what we see in juries, is that we need juries to understand the nature of policing and how, unfortunately, police lying and shading the truth is sometimes part you know, of the system. It's, it's somewhat endemic of the system. And I think if you had jurors kind of doing the healthy thing, which is to question officers as they would any witness, if that cultural ideal could kind of move its way into the public sphere, into the consciousness of the public, we might have juries that would be more critical in these types of cases and would hold officers accountable more regularly than every 50 years. Even in the Chauvin trial this week, we've seen the police chief basically testifying against his officer and saying that he believes that what Chauvin did was not good police practice. And so I'm wondering if you think this is starting to change, that there's a message that's being sent that this culture of silence around police and and the priority for them to protect each other, that that is no longer acceptable. Well, you know, that in some ways was an anomaly. It is really hard to find cases where officers are breaking ranks with other officers. I think officers are being cautious. They know the public sentiment may be changing. I think we we kind of heard it when they were even doing jury selection is that more people were kind of open-minded to say, wow, racism is is kind of an issue in this country and policing needs to be reformed. Uh, And I think we saw that in the extent too to the fact that the defense kept looking for these kind of quote-unquote conservative uh, law and order style jurors that would go along with the version of policing that Derek Chauvin is in some ways emblematic of. And I, you know, I think there is a shift in public sentiment. And I think many police leaders are starting to understand that unless they break with the ranks of the worst among them, that a larger wave of accountability may be coming next. And so is this self-serving? Is this meaningful, you know, hope for reform? I'm still hopeful. I'm hoping that police chiefs will say that this is not how policing should be. It's not how it should exist. It needs to be reformed. But we haven't seen this on a national level. And I think this case is so extraordinary that, you know, it's of the scale of, you know, the Rodney King case and seeking justice in that case. I mean, it's such a flashpoint that I'm not sure that that's indicative of a larger trend in police leadership standing against the worst of their own. If anything, unions across America have been protecting these officers and they've been doing it, um, you know, as a culture, kind of somewhat in solidarity with each other. 
Why do you think it's so important now to look at why it's so hard to prosecute police officers? I think about George Floyd sometimes and I wonder, you know, if he had lived, he would have just gone straight to jail and been convicted. And I can't say that the techniques to get him into jail would have been any better. You know, maybe the knee would have been held for five minutes. He would have been rushed to an infirmary in the jail and he would have survived. But the damage really was done. And I think right now we need to think of this as a continuum. When we see a suspect die, those represent the worst cases, right? The very worst, right? Someone is dead. But there are so many people sitting in jail right now. And their experiences, the experience of George Floyd, that, that's the experience of their arrest. And they may have come, you know, they were roughed up in the same way. An officer may have not been telling the truth. Um, those types of police practices really wither away at the legitimacy of the system and have people doubting, you know, about its equitability, certainly. And but I think the larger issue is this issue of human rights. But I think this case and the use of force and that video that we saw If this is policing in America, I think human rights begins on in our backyard, right? In the in the in in places that are very close to home, and we all should be participating and thinking and having a dialogue about what we want that to be in the future. Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleve is an assistant professor at Brown University. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Dio and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music and mixed today's show. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are our associate producers. And we are so excited to announce that we have two new team members. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our new assistant producers, and they are both fantastic. We cannot wait for you to get to know them and their work. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.